So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, we're really excited to be joined by James Galbraith, who holds the Lloyd M. Benston Jr. Chair in Government and Business Relations at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs and a professorship in government at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of many books, including Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe. Welcome to the show, Professor Galbraith. Thanks very much. It's good to be with you. Well, let's get right to it. I, I teach a 12th grade class where we talk for about a month about the theory, the theories of, of how markets fail, all the different ways that markets can fail. And then we spend a few weeks looking at some real examples. So we start with the 2008 crisis and then we move into the euro crisis and, and the crisis in Greece. So I guess the first question that I have is, and we've done a couple of shows on the 2008 financial crisis here, but how does a subprime crisis in the United States become a sovereign debt crisis in Europe and then specifically in, in Greece? Well, uh, there is a direct uh, line of connection between these things. The, 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 the subprime crisis in the United States was the result of the American financial system uh, creating debt instruments, the so-called mortgage-backed securities, out of uh, underlying mortgages, which were were in overwhelmingly fraudulent. They were undocumented as far as the income of the borrower, uh, and in and set up in such a way that they were destined to fail. Well, once you sell, once you create a bond out of a package of those mortgages, you have to sell it to somebody. The, a uh, major part of the market was, in fact, in Europe. Uh, it, was, it was German banks and pension funds and uh, municipalities and uh, any entity that thought, gee, it's a really great thing to have a highly rated, AAA rated debt instrument backed by Wall Street's most prestigious firms uh, that pays more interest than U.S. government bonds, but is just as safe. Uh, so they stocked up on these things. And of course, they all went bad in 2000. Seven to 2009, particularly in the fall of 2008. Well, that creates a certain amount of panic. Uh, and the next thing that happens when you have institutional investors and private investors who have, who are panicking about parts of their portfolio, uh, is they think, "Gee, I better get, uh, you know, I better protect myself from other losses." And in Europe, uh, a lot of people's a lot of these portfolios were composed of government debt of the various countries inside Europe, including uh, debt from the countries on the basically Mediterranean area. So Spain, Portugal, uh, Italy, and Greece, as well as Ireland. And uh, those looked like the relatively weak government bonds. So they were dumped and the interest rates went up dramatically, just shot up. So it's, um, as the people who held those bonds sold them in order to buy the bonds of the United States, France, Germany, Great Britain, uh, which were considered to be uh, and were, in fact, of course, very low risk. Uh, so there's a direct um, fallout from the American crisis to the European crisis. And of all of the European countries uh, that had debt uh, that uh, was being dumped, the weakest by far was Greece. And Greece became a... Um, let's say, a poster child 
for the working out uh, the consequences of that crisis. And uh, that's where things stood in um, early 2010, uh, when just as it happened, uh, the Greeks held an election and and, and brought uh, to power my uh, my friend George Papandreou, who was uh, the head of the, of the of the Socialist Party. So Papandreou came in having you know having basically a, a, on the end of a, of a of a long period of economic expansion. And things looked pretty rosy, and as soon as he, he he took office, it became clear that they not only weren't rosy, but they were facing an, a, a major um, catastrophic crisis. When you say that people were dumping Greek debt and that borrowing costs went up, what does that mean? Does that mean that it becomes, um, if they have to borrow at like 4% or 6%? What, what are the rates like for them? Oh, I'd have to look, but I think that was on, it was much higher than that. I think it was on the order of 10 to 12%. Okay. Uh, so a given stock of debt uh, that had been uh, issued at fairly low rates uh, became uh, essentially... Uh, exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, for the Greek government to finance without taking uh, extraordinary measures uh, to cut its other expenditures. Uh, and, uh, you know, and those measures were then imposed on Greece in May of 2010 uh, by a consortium of the, of, of, of the creditors that became known as the, as the Troika, the European Commission, European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. So you go to the Troika when you can't borrow from the financial markets, and they'll give you. That's a, correct, a, and they say, give you a, yeah, you, that's right, and they they'll, they'll give you a loan, uh, which doesn't go to support anything that you're doing in Greece. It merely goes to uh, reimburse the, uh, the 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 private banks, uh, particularly the French banks and the German banks, uh, that were uh, creditors of the Greek state. Uh, and so they get paid, uh, and the condition of uh, of not defaulting to those banks uh, is that the Greek state has to impose a really drastic program of economic contraction, of austerity, of budget cuts, spending cuts, tax increases, particularly cuts in pensions on uh, on on the Greek people. And then Greece entered a period of of economic collapse that was. Uh, it was greater than the, in proportionate terms, than the Great Depression in the United States. What's the economic logic behind that? Because it seems like if you're asking a country to embark on a program of austerity, and we sort of know what will happen, right? And it did happen. So why would the central bank in, in Europe want to do this to one of its own members? Well, of course, the people at, uh, you know, pressing for the program told themselves a lot of lies uh, about the effect uh, they had, and they had some academic studies that they could point to that uh, claim that if that these that this kind of measure would generate renewed confidence and new investment, but I, I think they knew that wasn't going to happen. Uh, what they were interested in were two things: one was protecting the the the, the bankers, uh, and the other was projecting power and making it clear not just to Greece. Uh, but to the other uh, debtor countries that they had to fall in line, and that in particular Italy, uh, and Portugal, Spain, were, and, the, and the same kind of pressure was brought on Ireland as well in this period. So this is this is an exercise in raw power, and it's carried out by the by institutions that are controlled 
uh, by the creditor nations and by the bankers. Uh, so it, it is it, it is not. Uh, it, what, you shouldn't read this as, as well-meaning mistakes. It, it, I think the, the, the truth of the matter is the creditors knew exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it. So just so I'm clear, the Troika is independent of any one government, but I remember when I was following the story, it seemed like people were often blaming the Germans for the Greek predicament. So what's the relationship between the Troika and, say, the, the German government? Well, the German government, Germany is certainly the most powerful uh, actor inside uh, the European Union uh, and the German government and particularly uh the Chancellor Angela Merkel, but especially the Finance Minister Wolf, at the time Wolfgang Schäuble, took uh, a very strong leadership role. But one must not discount the role of the French as well. Uh, the French banks were, if anything, more exposed than German banks to Greece. Uh, to the four Greek bank, major Greek banks, and two of them are owned by French banks. They and there is the other the fact that they uh, this is a really disgraceful fact, but it's a fact that the managing director of the International Monetary Fund at the time, uh, a Frenchman by the name of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, wanted to be uh, become the next president of France, uh, and so part of his motivation for bringing the IMF uh, into this was that he it would give him uh, credit for having rescued the French bank. So internal politics of the European countries plays a role in this, uh, but not to the great, to, I mean, to the great disadvantage of the Greeks. And then does the central bank, does the ECB, the European Central Bank, tend to listen to the most powerful members of the European Union? Oh, yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a pure expression of the, uh, of, of the financial power of the European Union, sure. Okay. Sure. And uh, originally, uh, it was another high-class uh, French p political figure, uh, Trichet, who was the head of the ECB, and then it, it went on. It devolved to um, to a, an Italian uh, veteran of Goldman Sachs uh, named Mario Draghi, who's now uh, the Prime Minister of Italy. I see. So the Greeks, I understand, respond to this this imposition of of austerity by electing a coalition, a left-wing coalition named Syriza. And I guess I have two questions. For an American audience, most of our audience is American, and for you know high school kids whose reference is mm -hmm. to sort of the left is like AOC and the squad, are they similar to, would they have been in Syriza? I mean, who is Syriza and what, what are they like politically? And then the other question is, were you at this time an advisor to the Greek government? Okay, so just to stretch out the timeline a little bit, uh, Papandreou came in, in in 2000, and his government lasted, I, I've forgotten now, through, through 2012 or so. Uh, and then there were a succession of governments, uh, a, 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 a government that was basically imposed by Greece on Greece by the creditors, and then uh, a conservative government, uh, which carried up until the end of 2000, to the start of 2015. Uh, so it's at that point uh, that after five years of deep depression, and you really, really had to go there and uh, you know see the collapse of uh, of, of commerce, the collapse of of, of uh, civilized human life in the major Greek cities, uh, to um, you know, the collapse of healthcare, um, education, 
uh, in Greece. This was a very grim situation. They rallied around uh, a really eclectic group of um, of, of, of left-wingers and did not include the traditional Greek Communist Party, uh, did not include the formerly dominant Greek Socialist Party, Pazok, Papandreou's party. So who was it really? Well, there was this uh, uh, motorcycle riding, uh, uh, well, actually two motorcycle riding <laughs> types, but yeah, this young, brash young man, Alexis Tsipras. Uh, there was a collection of former communists. There were a collection of, of, of ecology-oriented people, for, uh, trade union types, uh, expatriate uh, academics, uh, really, a, a, you know, a group, uh, uh, this was a coalition of, of the parties of the radical left, that's what mm -hmm. Syriza stands for. Uh, and their um, economic uh, ideas uh, and platform, to a very substantial extent, came from a professor at the University of Athens, uh, who eventually, after the, two years before that election, was a visiting professor at the LBJ school, oh, wow. uh, my friend Yanis Varoufakis. Uh, and Yanis had, had, had come to my attention basically writing a blog after 2008 and particularly the Greek crisis, which was by far and away the best informed and uh, you know, most energetic and clear-headed critique of everything that was going on. Giannis left the LBJ school, ran for parliament, didn't spend a penny, got the highest uh, plurality majority in any, wow. any elect, uh, figure in that election. Uh, and in uh, a few days after that, he was finance minister. Uh, and so uh, that was uh, that was the start of the five month uh, Greek spring, as Athens spring, as we called it, effort to get a renegotiation of this extremely bad deal. Uh, that had been handed to the previous governments by, by the financial authorities, the Europeans and the IMF. Five years is a long time for Greece to be going through a depression. Even at that point, the, the Troika wasn't willing to see that they had been making a, a mistake. With their with their policy, oh, I, I think they they knew they they did not consider that they were making a mistake. Okay, uh, they, they first of all they were getting what they wanted, which was the uh, uh, the it, it couldn't get it couldn't squeeze a lot more money out of Greece. Uh, they but they they the cycling of 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 onerous loans in order to pay the previous debts meant that the burden of, of a Greek default was transferred from the private to the public sector of Europe. Uh, so that protected the financial elites. And then it went after the Greek assets. So they say you have to privatize your electric companies, your ports, your airports, uh, anything that uh, could be sold that might yield a profit would then be sold off at fire sale prices. Uh, to uh, whoever mostly I mean, German, Dutch, French, whoever wanted to buy cheap assets in Greece, including um, the uh, one of the the the, the uh, great glories of, of of Greece, which is the the fact that the beaches in Greece are public. Uh, so there was just a, a, a comprehensive effort, also housing um, effort, to to put as many Greek. Uh, enterprises essentially on the auction block as possible, public and also private. Uh, so that was that was really the, uh, what was going on. Uh, we knew it was that, that was the, the objective. And the only way to stop it was to effectively force a renegotiation of the, of the terms of the debt. What did Syriza want in terms of a renegotiation? And were they ever interested in, in a Grexit? Uh, 
the idea of 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 Brexit of of leaving the eurozone uh, was a something that uh, was approached very cautiously inside the finance ministry and was a last resort. Uh, but it was certainly something that was considered, and I had the responsibility of developing at least a memorandum that would set out a, num- a number of steps that would have to be done uh, should that emergency uh, happen. Uh, the, uh, it was never the policy of the Greek government or the, or the finance ministry to take those steps, but, but there was some contingency planning that I was involved in. In terms of what they wanted to, was, to, was to essentially put the debt on a very long-term basis uh, at, at, at rates that could be, could be paid and uh, to alter the terms of the so-called memorandum of understanding of the, of the austerity package uh, so that some its most egregious and aggressive and dysfunctional features would get removed and, and to restore also a degree of, of, of control of the Greek government over its own uh, decision-making. All of those things were, were part of, of, um, of what the, what the, uh, the, uh, you know, the left, what the finance ministry was trying to do. Uh, they, uh, you know, it's 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 fair to say that the that the series of government from an early stage was internally divided, uh, and eventually the a defeatist group in the prime minister's circle had control of the situation. We did not. I went out very early. I was there okay. for the opening of the parliament and was in and out of Athens during this period, and and also basically also operating remotely from from Austin or from occasionally from Brussels and even Washington and New York occasionally, on behalf of uh, of, of Yanis, unpaid. So, what would you have liked, Cyprus? Am I pronouncing his name right? The prime minister, Cyprus. Yeah, Cyprus. Yeah. What would you have liked him to to do? Well, um, this gets a, a little bit technical, but there was one important lever, a bit of leverage that the Greek government had. And uh, let me try to explain it in terms that can be, uh, can be communicated. Uh, but uh, some <laughs> of the older Greek debt could be was in the was in still in the hands of the European Central Bank or had been bought up by the European Central Bank back in 2010. And it was still debt that the whose terms the Greek finance ministry controlled legally. And so it would have been possible to write down that debt with a stroke of the pen. And the consequences of doing that would have triggered a, a major crisis in the affairs of the European Eurozone, the currency area itself, uh, because it would have put the central bank in violation of a basic part of its own charter. Uh, and the German constitutional court would have come in and uh, under and basically cut the ground out from under the European Central Bank. So we had, uh, the Greek finance ministry had a very powerful tool uh, that gave it potentially gave it leverage in negotiations uh, with the European Union. We can do this if you don't uh, meet some terms that we are now asking you to meet. It wasn't just, would you please be reasonable and, and understand that we are right and you're wrong, which we definitely were on the merits. Uh, but we had some, we had some leverage. Uh, the Greek government did. The problem was that the finance, the prime minister's office and the prime minister 
were unwilling to use that leverage and they let it be known that they wouldn't use it. So that cut the ground out from under the finance ministry. And in a nutshell is, the, is, 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 is I think, the, the basic story. So at a certain point in, I guess it was June, the uh, Greek government announced a referendum would be held. And the question on the referendum was, should we accept or not accept uh, the terms uh, that are demanded by the European creditors? There had been such a media campaign that of what would happen if you ref- if, if Greeks refuse to accept them, that the prime minister basically believed that the Greeks would vote to accept the terms, and that would give him uh, a graceful way of capitulating. They underestimated the Greek people uh, and <laughs> by, by a lot. Uh, and in fact, uh, well, it was obvious to me that, that, that uh, the mood in the country was much tougher. It wasn't obvious to people who've been living through this. Uh, and um, uh, the Greek, at the time of the referendum, the Greeks rather bravely voted 61% no. Oshi is Greek wow. for no. Wow. Uh, we are not going to accept the terms. And that put uh, Alexis Cyprus in, in, in a very difficult position. He has, Giannis, he, he basically made it clear to Giannis he was going to capitulate anyway. Giannis resigned the next morning. Cyprus hesitated for a few days or stalled for a few days and then completely capitulated. Uh, but at, even at that point, if he had stood firm uh, and said, I have a mandate from my people and I have to observe it, things might have might have come out better. But uh, there was a complete capitulation and that continues to the present day. Wow. Um, in my class, we read uh, an article by um, an economist named Barry Etchingreen, who the article is called The Euro, Love It or Leave It. And it was written in 2007 originally. And he sort of walks through in a pretty clear way why it would be so difficult for a country in the Eurozone to leave the Eurozone. And I'm wondering, as you help design the potential exit plan, what would that have plan looked like if Greece would have gone back to, you know, a drachma, let's say? Well, there are a lot of details, actually, in the appendix to the book whose title you mentioned earlier, Welcome to the Poison Chalice. I basically took the memorandum that I wrote and, <laughs> and edited it a little bit. Okay. Um, but there are basically two major things here. Uh, one is bank deposits. And bank deposits were un- under capital controls. Uh, you couldn't, in any event, in the last month or so of this, uh, make any purchases outside of Greece with a Greek bank deposit. So converting that to a drachma deposit, in my view now, would have not have been very complicated. Just to say, okay, they were euro, they're now drachma. Uh, and you can establish an exchange rate for converting them into euro. I think that would have been... Uh, the relatively easy part of it. The more difficult part was that uh, at that time, much less now, but at that time, Greeks used a lot of cash uh, and pensioners had the habit of basically drawing their cash. Uh, and so there was a big question of how you give, how you get a means of payment into the hands of people who are used to having, uh, you know, having paper distributions. And that, that was, that was, uh, you know, really interesting and difficult question. You don't have a, you can't set up a printing press uh, and make that distribution and change all of the 
you know, ATMs and the, the bank teller deposits and the teller uh, tills and so forth uh, in that, over a very short period of time. So the the idea, the, the worry that, that things would simply break down and you would have real shortages uh, for very vulnerable people was 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 really was really worrisome. Could that have been handled uh, in the mood of the Greek people in uh, June, July of, of 2015? I'm inclined to think that it could have been, yes. Uh, that, uh, uh, but there would have been, uh, it, it would have been politically uh, a risky thing to do. On the other hand, uh, the mood was the mood was so firmly determined at that point that you know in that situation people tend to tend to put up with inconveniences and find workarounds and and be supportive and the government would might might well have survived it in my view. Legally, mm-hmm. another part of the issue is that it there's no provision in the constitution of the euro to, for a country to leave it without also leaving the European Union. And so that would have raised another another whole set of questions about what what would have been Greece's status with the EU and you know the the relationship. What's happened with Brexit tells you that that's that can, <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. of fairly thorny things that would have uh, uh, had uh, would have developed. Um, but at that time, Brexit hadn't happened, so we that was another set of questions that we could only sort of take a take a quick poke at we really couldn't deal with them in detail one of the reasons that i reached out to you is that we in our class have been reading a lot about the central bank sanctions against russia and i heard a podcast last week where one of the guests was saying you know well we've seen central bank sanctions before and one of the cases that we've seen that is with with Greece and the ECB. To what extent do you think that's right, that the ECB was employing sanctions against Greece to get the policy it wanted? Oh, it absolutely was from the very beginning. They, 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 the European Commission sent its uh, one of its uh, functionaries, the Dutch uh, finance minister, I guess, uh, Jero and Geiselbaum, to Athens. And he basically told Giannis right off the bat, you do what we say or we're going to trash your banking system. Wow. And by that, he meant that they were going to deprive the banking system of, uh, of deposits and basically bring it down. Uh, and they and they did that over the course of the five months uh, by putting the bank, Greek banking system on a unnecessarily uh, on a life support called emergency li- liquidity assistance, and then squeezing that uh, so that uh, anybody who had deposits uh, in Greek banks understood that it was probably prudent to to take them out to the maximum extent possible. So they deepened the depression of the Greek economy and they did that very deliberately and they didn't they told us they were doing it. It wasn't a secret to us. Um, in terms of um, and then of course in later on in in, in June or May, late May or June they uh, they ordered the to us to uh, order the Greek finance minister to impose capital controls uh, which meant that all purchases by Greeks through the banking system outside of, uh, of food and med- medicines had to be approved specifically by the finance ministry. And they set up servers in the building and any, any payment that wasn't uh, you know, in the approved category was simply stopped. Uh, so you couldn't, for example, uh, you know, pay an invoice for auto parts or, or something else that you might want to get from Germany or Italy, and so that that was a another sanction. Um, 
the the effect of these sanctions uh, was, uh, generally speaking, to increase support for the government. Uh, just, people don't like to be pushed around, and uh, that's probably without making stereotypes out of people. The Greeks are particularly don't like being pushed around; rather tough and proud people. Uh, and the, uh, the, so the political effect of this, I think, was the opposite of what uh, the Europeans uh, thought it would be. They underestimated who they were dealing with. It was really something, I mean, just to, on, for, as a personal note, it was, it was really a dramatic, uh, emotional, um, and uh, pride-inducing experience for me to be able to, be, to, to, to spend some time uh, working with these people and assisting them uh, and the, the, the strength and uh, toughness and maturity that they showed was, was very impressive to me. And I was also, speaking about the general population in Greece. They, yeah. were, they supported us all the way through. You know, I had been in Italy at the time and there were some left coalitions trying to come together to build something like Syriza. And I think after, after the referendum, people sort of lost motivation or faith that that the left could be a, a real force in, in European politics. Yes, I think you're right. I was in also in and out of Italy in those at that time. I didn't have a terribly close connection to, but enough enough connection to the to the scene to to see see that as well. Yeah, you know, in our class, some of the more neoclassical stuff that we're reading posits that, well, look, what happened in Greece was that Greeks had become uncompetitive. Prices had become too high in Greece, and so this depression was actually good for them in the end because it, it brought down these sticky wages which had gotten too high and would make Greek more competitive, uh, Greeks more competitive on the export market. We're now in 2022. Has, is that true? Is, is Greece doing well today? There's absolutely nothing to that argument. Uh, they, uh, the Greeks, first of all, worked harder, more hours at lower wages uh, than certainly any other group uh, population in the eurozone maybe you know there be some other relatively uh low-income areas but greece is uh certainly they work many more hours for much less pay than your average german does um but they uh they such industry as they had before they joined the european union uh was already uh very severely compromised by uh, essentially technically um, superior and more powerful corporations based in the north of Europe. Uh, so this is a country whose economy was overwhelmingly um, and very strongly oriented toward tourism, and the tourism is of a particular type, mostly small hotels and restaurants. Uh, and there's no, just no way you're going to turn that into a, uh, um, uh, an export powerhouse uh, it's not it's not physically possible and it wouldn't be desirable if it were uh, the greeks could reduce their wages to zero uh and you know high quality german engineering would not relocate to greece uh nor would uh the uh, you know the relatively low-wage consumer goods industries of, of china uh, it's in order to do something to bring Greece back to prosperity, you have to figure out uh, the, the kinds of activities that a, that a country in its situation can really do 
and thrive on. Uh, and you know, there there are such things. There, there there's a uh, it's a it's a country that with with ten million people and with a strong uh, cultural base and a strong archaeological base and uh, obviously a wonderful environment for tourism and for retirement homes and so on. And you can make you can make a decent living out of that. Uh, but you have to invest in it and you have to plan it out and you have to support it through uh, through weak periods and it's going to happen. And that's that's what you can't do when you're having to fire all your civil servants and run your value added taxes up to the point where, you're, where, where your tourism is not competitive with, let's say, Turkey or other places that are right nearby. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, one, one can go down the, the list of things that when you can't make money off your airports because you have to sell them off to uh, German companies uh, or you have to privatize your electric utilities, all these things are just going to, it's basically a colonization effort. The last question I have is a question I like to ask all the guests. Um, because I, I I need it right now. But what is uh, the thing in the world that you're most optimistic about? <laughs> uh, right now, sources of optimism are a little hard to come by. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, I think what, what I, I'm, I, you know, I, my, I've, I've spent the last almost 40 years as a, as, as a teacher, uh, and I, I do believe that uh, people who put their mind, young people who put their minds to problems can come to understand them. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you get to solve them, uh, but uh, that's a start. And I, uh, I, 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 I carry on not because of my connection to the dreary worlds of politics and my enormous and long-lasting affinity for lost causes uh, but, <laughs> but 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 because i keep getting kicked by people younger than myself who have uh who haven't had it uh, haven't had it snuffed down to their spirit yet <laughs>